Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer. Today, my co-host, Dr. Joe Flanders, interviews Dr. Anthony Back. Dr. Back is a co-founder of Vital Talk, a national nonprofit that provides innovative, interactive clinician and faculty development courses to improve communication skills on an individual and institutional level. Dr. Back is also a professor of medicine at the University of Washington in Seattle and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Back earned his MD at Harvard University and he's triple board certified in hospice palliative care medicine, medical oncology, and general internal medicine. In his role as a medical communication educator and a Vital Talk co-founder, Dr. Back was the principal investigator for OncoTalk, co-wrote Mastering Communication with Seriously Ill Patients, released the first iPhone app for clinician communication skills, and authored the online communication skills curriculum offered by the Center to Advance Palliative Care. In 2019, Dr. Back wrote an article in the Journal of Palliative Medicine called What Psilocybin Taught Me About Dying. So in today's interview, you'll hear Joe talk to Anthony about the difference between improving quality of life versus having a good death, how Anthony's personal psilocybin experience changed the way he thought about death and dying, what it's like to grapple with the need to understand the great mystery of life and death, and of course, much, much more. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support us, you can do that by leaving a review or a rating in places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're listening on YouTube, you can like the video, subscribe to the Numinous channel, and share the episode with a friend. If you want to contact us, you can email us at ptfpodcast at numinous.com. Without further ado, here is Joe's interview with Dr. Anthony Back. Okay, I am very pleased to have Dr. Anthony Back on the show today. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here. How's the day so far? Uh, my day is going well, actually. <laughs> what are you up to today? Well, I was doing a little work on my study. Oh, working out paperwork and kinks and process. But uh, yeah, but I think we're onto a new level of process complexity. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, sounds interesting. Um, so I know you primarily as a palliative care doctor. Uh, and I'm really excited to chat with you about that and how psychedelics kind of intersect with, with that field. Um, but let's start with some basics. Um, maybe you can tell me what you do and how you got into that line of work. Sure. Um, so I originally uh, trained and practiced as a medical oncologist. Um, I got into that because um, when I was a sophomore in college, my mother died of a blood-related cancer. And so at the time, I was like, holy cow, I have to figure out how to live. And um, that took me into medicine, and um, but took me into medicine with a particular background. I had ended up um, studying humanities and um writing a senior thesis about James Joyce and Virginia Woolf because I was interested in narrative and how people construct stories. And I went into medical school with kind of that background. Mm -hmm. um, in medical school, I had kind of a tough time because I didn't like sitting in all those lectures. And 
it wasn't until I got to actually talking to patients in the clinic that I felt like I was maybe in the right place. Um, and after medical school, I did a medical oncology fellowship and, and was a practicing medical oncologist. I um, had a career development grant in basic science where I was making transgenic mice, you know, like mice with an extra gene because I was interested in the differentiation of white cells. And I was making all these genetically altered mice and breeding them and learning to breed them. And I had this moment where I was like, holy cow, I'm going to become a mouse breeding doctor. And I was like, I don't think that's the future. That's really for me. And at, at the same time, I had been dealing with all these um, issues at clinic where I was with these people who were dying or thought they were going to die or were worried about dying. And I really didn't have a, a good way to approach it. And I you know, went to a famous medical school and followed all these famous people around. And they didn't know how to, they didn't know how to do it either. I mean, it was really kind of avoidance or diversion or minimization. And um, having been with my mother and lived through that mm. with my family, I just thought, this is not quite right. Um, and so that's what got me into palliative care. So I uh, kind of made a career switch. I was part of the the generation of physicians who developed palliative care in the United States, you know, it, it, it lagged behind Canada in that respect. And um, we turned palliative care into a thing. Yeah. Um, and so that uh, career was very rich. And I ended up doing a bunch of research about how doctors and patients communicate, especially mm -hmm. about how do they talk about bad news? How do they talk about prognosis? How do they talk about what's going to happen in the future? And um, learned that there's a whole set of skills that I really didn't learn as a trainee that we turned into a, a startup with a social entrepreneur kind of background. And so I basically took lessons from the social entrepreneurs in Seattle and San Francisco and raised money and created a nonprofit startup called Vital Talk that um, scaled communication training in small groups with actors with a very specific kind of evidence-based learning model. And so I'd, I've spent years and years, you know, sitting with people who are dealing with their cancer or dealing with a life-threatening illness and also with doctors and other clinicians who are trying to figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of set the stage for me to get interested in psychedelics. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, for those of us listeners um, who aren't that familiar with palliative care, maybe you can tell us exactly what it is and um, what is the role of a palliative care doctor? What makes a good palliative care doctor, et cetera? Oh, sure. Uh, so palliative care is a medical specialty um, that involves a team of multi-professionals that is aimed at improving the quality of life for somebody who is living with a serious illness. So it deals with the stress, the symptoms, the coping, the future planning, um, all that kinds of stuff. And it's really for any age and any stage of a serious illness. Um, you know, I think of the big parts of serious illness care as there is advanced care planning, which is for everyone, you know, talking about what kind of care is important to you now, what kind of care might you want in the future. There's palliative care when you uh, are dealing with a serious illness. 
then there is hospice for when you are really in the end of life care phase. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, many palliative care doctors move amongst those things and do all three of them. Um, but the reason I distinguish them, I distinguish palliative care from end of life care a bit is because um, many patients uh, decline palliative care because right. they think it's only for dying people. And, you know, the fact is that that's not where the real benefit is, right? The real benefit is for people when they're still dealing with their illness um, because we're um, enabling them to live better, take on the challenges, you know, work with their families or the people who are around them. And um, that's what palliative care does. Cool. Um, I was sort of um, intrigued in, in looking into some of your some of your work and just my curiosities about this field in general. Um, maybe, I don't know if there's a distinction, but in my mind, I'd love to hear you kind of speak to uh, this potential distinction between um, improving quality of life and helping people have a good death. Yeah. How do you, how do you, yeah, yeah. See, how do you see those two things? Well, I mean, I see them as really interlinked. And the reason I mentioned the issue of the reason I lead in thinking about palliative care as uh, living well with a serious illness is because when we are talking to patients who are terrified, um, they mostly do not want to talk about having a good death, right? Mm-hmm. There is this long, venerable tradition of hospice care um, in North America that came from the UK, Cicely Saunders, right? The idea that there was care for dying people, which was revolutionary at the time. And and yet what we have found is that um, when you're coming from the point of view of talking to the general public, about 10% of the general public wants to talk about having a good death. The other 90% of the public does not want to talk about having a good death. And if you say, oh, we have a service that's about having a good death. They're like, thank you. I don't think I'm ready for that. And in the United States, uh, there was a survey of executive, healthcare executives, large you know, cancer centers, other large hospitals. They reported that 60% of the people who could benefit from palliative care in their facilities dec- don't get it. Right. And the largest reason is that they decline. So, you know, the way I see it is I see it as kind of a developmental evolutionary thing for somebody who is living with a serious illness. When you are first diagnosed and for a long, for a while into your disease modifying treatment, you were really thinking about living well. You're thinking about, can I beat this? You're thinking about, can I extend my time? Can I do all this stuff? And at some point, you know, in a healthy trajectory, people will make a shift to starting to feel that they can think about uh, their death, that death uh, might be okay, that they could even imagine it, that they could start to prepare their families for it. And so I I think the issue that we face, and you know this as a psychologist, is when you confront people with something they don't really want to talk about, like, don't you want to talk about your de- upcoming death? They just react and push back. And actually what you get is more resistance, right. more than introduction to the topic. Um, so that's why I'm distinguishing those two. In a way, in, in practice, for an experienced clinician, they flow right into each other. Yeah. Um, but um, from the point of view of the public, there's a very clear distinction. And I think one of the reasons that 
palliative care has not had more penetration in the United States. It's actually this issue. Wow. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I've just finished this big public messaging project, and we have just reviewed all the data, all the empirical data about com consumer perceptions, right? So these are people who are not yet patients, but they are people who get health care, um, and they are very, very clear. They do not want to talk about um, dying, and they think palliative, they have all these misconceptions about palliative care. Most of them don't even know what palliative care is. And so we have a pretty significant messaging issue around this. And I think it's relevant for our audience because I think it's going to be very relevant for the future of psychedelics mm -hmm. in this space. That okay. if we focus the future of psychedelics on helping you have a good death, I actually think we will miss out on a wow. large number of people who actually would end up dealing with all their mortality issues during their trip, but would be a little reticent to say, ooh, that's why I'm going to do this. Right. Hmm. So I, I'm very interested in this as the future of psychedelics for serious illness care, honestly. Right. What an interesting kind of challenge or, or sort of issue to explore. I, I'm suddenly wondering why I'm in the 10% of people that actually want to talk about the good death. And if I'm going to lose well, uh, lose 90% of our audience here, what, what do yeah. you think about that? No, you know what? I think it is, you know what, you as a clinician, you've right. talked to a lot of people who've dealt with this. You've seen a lot of different ways this can go, right? You have a whole repertoire of possible stories mm -hmm. about what happens when people are um, dealing with a life-threatening illness. You know, the general public or someone who has just been diagnosed, they don't really have any stories. They have the stories that we have in the media, and the media stories are very odd. They're very skewed in a particular way. You know, first you get the diagnosis and the person valiantly fighting with cancer and living normally. And I think of the actors in People magazine who get, you know, cancer. Like, they look great, and they're like, they're all doing their same thing, right? Then they disappear for... Mm -hmm six months or a year or somebody and then they come back and they disappear and then they're dead i mean i think of barbara bush you know the uh, wife of the american president who um was out of the public spot you know she got sick she was out of the public spotlight then she came back and said i'm getting palliative care and then the next day she died oh. right aretha franklin right metastatic cancer stopped her tour said she would resume comes back, says she's getting hospice, the next day she's dead. I mean, literally, that's the story over and over in the public sphere. So there is this very odd absence of real stories about it's what it's really like to live. And so we have, you know, people who don't know this and don't live in the clinical world that we live in, they have one kind of story that's about everything's normal and everything's fine and I'm just like the way they am, which is that's not really quite realistic, right? And then there are and then there's like nothing, right? So I, I think that's part of the issue that we face in talking to people about ways to deal with what happens when you are um, in the thick of a life-threatening illness. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I, I, I got very intrigued by your statement that um, the best or most, pro most promising kind of context for uh, psychedelics might be this quality of life piece more so than the good death piece, which was maybe my bias going in. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, 
So I should say, this is an empirical question. Okay. You know, like, I don't think we know, there's not enough data yet about what it is. You know, I yeah. think that the existing studies of people with cancer, for example, who had psilocybin, you know, at Hopkins and UCLA, and you know, uh, NYU, they're tiny studies. You know, there right. were like 30 people in each of them. So that's, I mean, if you take all those studies put together, it's actually less than 100 people. And they were highly, highly selected patients, right? Right. Both of those sites recruited for over three years to get 30 patients because nobody knew what psychedelics were about. Right. Not all of them had incurable cancer. And um, so I think they're a very particular set of patients. And I think the question is, is what is this going to look like when you scale it up yeah. and you take on all these other patients? many of whom will be in the middle of anti-cancer treatment. There weren't mm -hmm. that many people who were in the middle of anti-cancer treatment during those studies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think there's just a lot for us to learn. And I think it might be that initially talking about a good death and, and talking about how do you want to face your death might be a really great hook for a certain number of people. But yeah. I think there will be an another group of people for whom, how do you want to make the best of the whatever time you have yeah. left? Yeah. Right. Will be a whole different kind of yeah. um, hook, even if the, the base issue, the issue they get to during their trip is kind of the same issue. Right. right? I can see that there is a possibility of like overdoing the distinction as well, because they sort of blend into each other. Right. Um, and, you know, I wonder if I can um, dive into something that you wrote, um, this piece in the Journal of Palliative Care Medicine. Sure. Or Journal of Palliative Medicine, 2019, What Psilocybin Taught Me About Dying. And uh, I'm seeing here that this is both about a good death and quality of life. Um, but I wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit. You said something like, um, you had this psilocybin experience, your kind of like small manager self kind of disappeared for a while, but then kind of came back online. And then you said, but when, when it came back online, it was accompanied by an ineffable sense of the beyond. And that has altered the way you think about dying and how you talk about it with patients. Um, I, I'd love to just hear more about what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... I came into my, that was my first psychedelic experience. I had yep. never even done any drugs in college, right? I'd never smoked pot before. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a nerd. I, and, and <laughs> I came into this uh, thinking kind of as a materialist, uh, like, you know, when the body goes, consciousness goes and that's over. And I have to say that my own experience with psychedelics has kind of shifted my worldview of this kind of, uh, in a way I did not expect. And that first psilocybin um, journey really put me in contact with another sense of what is out there in the universe that kind of changed how, that changed my, you know, really strict materialist view on what this existence is all about. Um, of course, I don't think I'm the only, I'm not far from the only one to have reported this, but it really mm -hmm. changed my um, sense of what happens when, when people die or when I die from this, you know, what happens to my body and my personal identity and my ego and my individual self. You know, as a doctor, I'm very trained and, you know, the individual mm -hmm. is the, 
unit of treatment, right? To this sense that actually there is something more that we are mostly just not in contact with, but there is in fact something else out there. And the, the reason that changed, that shifted my worldview is that um, understanding that we are connected to something out there, even if we're not aware of it in our normal everyday lives, that actually gives death a, a somewhat different meaning. It, it, there's there is both an individual version of this now for me and and a much larger version of what where i fit in the in the big universe and it sounds really airy fairy but it's it's uh weird honestly i'm it's uh -huh. it's yeah so i you know not having um having come from uh a very non um you know not a very particularly spiritual childhood mm -hmm. um this has been a big shift for me. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to the listeners who, um, I mean, most of them are into psychedelics, so there are probably not that many of them, but the ones who are a little more attached to a materialist view of death and our yeah. bodies and, you know, um, consciousness emerges from, you know, uh, actual physical matter uh, between our ears and once that matter is no longer supported by a living body, the yeah. lights go out and that's it. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, so you know what I would say? And so this is what I, what I would say to a person who's considering psychedelic therapy or somebody who's considering, considering this. I would say uh, you, we do not have to have an argument about this now. I would say <laughs> you can just go into this experience with, with a question and see. And you don't even have to have a question of, is there something more? You can have a question of, you know, what am I going to do with this life? What's going to happen to this body? What's going to happen to the people I care about after I leave, if that's what I'm worried about? I think it's, it, it's plenty to go into an experience with those kinds of questions mm -hmm. and to see what kinds of answers are, are given. Um, does that make sense? Like, I don't think you have to convince people to have this, to have the spiritual outlook before they go into it, and in some sense, this this comes from my bias as an educator that, you know, right. the experience is primary. Like mm -hmm. you should make sure people have as rich an experience as possible, and then debrief it like mad, mm -hmm. right? And what that means is that you know you pay attention to what the people people's safety you pay attention to your relationship with them you pay attention to building a level of trust where they will accept little nudges and suggestions from you as the therapist and see where all that goes i'm also curious though about you know someone who's sort of intellectually curious about what you're saying so yeah. you're accompanied by an ineffable sense of the beyond yeah. And of course, you know, by definition, it's mysterious, but how, how would, you know, given that you're a doctor and you live in the physical world, how would, you know, and communication is important, right? Um, you want to make this digestible for somebody listening purely on a sort of metaphysical basis. What is this beyond business that you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it is the great mystery, right? Okay. 
I mean, I think if you take it, I, I think the ways that humans can have conceptualized this are yeah. part of the wisdom traditions and the great religions, yeah. right? So I think yeah. there are Christians who would say this is God, uh -huh. right? There are Buddhists who'd say this is the Dharma, uh -huh. right? The, the Jungians would say this is the collective unconsciousness uh -huh. and all that lies below that. So I do think people have humans have struggled for millennia to try and wrap their heads around this, yeah. right? And try and put language on something that is yeah. really, you know, impossible to describe. Sure. And, and I think that is um, something that actually as physicians and clinicians, we actually should be open to, because I think yes. our materialism actually really affects how people see their own yes. life and death. And so I think one of the ways that we have to be careful here um, is to figure out how we can meet the language and the, the, the way that patient talks about this or approaches this. Um, because, you know, in our very secular world, the ways that patients talk about this, this aspect of their experience is quite, is sometimes quite hard to discern. Mm -hmm. And I think many patients, especially patients, you know, as an oncologist, patients coming to a cancer center, they're embarrassed that they don't think that it's something that I want to talk about with them. Mm -hmm. Right. They actually downplay their own, their own beliefs and own experience because they think when they come to these big medical centers, they have to play by right. medical rules and the medical rules are, you know, materialist and procedural and consequential, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm with you on, you know, well, first of all, the choice of word ineffable and actually the futility, um, sometimes of really trying to nail sort of modeling this thing with language that there's actually something quite empowering about being able to, to just be with the mystery. Um, and you know, it, it does strike me as like this desire to, uh, kind of put language on things and, and like figure things out is it is the domain of small self to take your language. Um, totally. and, and that you talk about like the importance of allowing that to dissolve and then this beautiful phrase that you have here about um, developing some ability to tolerate or, or some comfort with having the sense of the small self dissolving, it offers it offered you something alive and potent, right? So that there's something, I don't know what, healing or liberating or empowering about being able to be with the mystery. So what did you mean about alive and potent and, and, and how did you get there? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> what, you know, I, I think in my own, um, experience, my, um, psilocybin, uh, trips have put me in contact with what feels like this larger energy in the universe. Like this sense that I have that I am, uh, channeling the kind of creative intelligence of the universe, whatever that might be, you know, and that might be the Dharma and some for Sundays for me, it might be something bigger in some days, other days. Um, and although it's not something I necessarily would talk about with a patient, I mean, it does give me a bigger sense of what I am doing, um, in even a clinical encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it also helps 
free me up from the sense that my actions are the only things that are going to happen. There's much more happening in all of these clinical interactions than I than I can control or even understand or be aware of. And I think that brings me into this into these encounters in a different way. It's a bit more of a humble way. There's a bit more of what Harvey Chachanov would call the clinical humility of it all. And um, it also puts me in a frame of curiosity and um, discovery, which is very different than what I was trained. I was trained as a medical oncologist to be very predictive and be very mm -hmm. prognostic and to know what the survival curve looks like and to know what the median survivals were and to educate people about that. And, you know, that has definitely some benefits, you know, this is what you should be, you know, this is what I'd want you to be prepared for kind of thing. But it also feels to many patients very deterministic and limited and um, not very imaginative. And I, I, I do think that is one of the reasons that people who are living with a life-threatening illness resist much of the language of prognosis that, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. specialists try to give to them. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, it is actually what, I, as I see, and you know, now I've listened to thousands and thousands of recorded conversations between doctors and patients. And I, I think it is one of the sources of tension that often arises in these, in these conversations. So I'm not sure if um, you followed the story at all, but I just um, became aware of uh, Roland Griffith's uh, kind of announcement. Um, he's got stage yeah. four cancer, um, seems to be a terminal, and he's um, been quite vocal about his experience. And yes. what he has to say is really quite beautiful and inspiring. Um, you know, in particular, what really stuck with me is the sense that he uh, is kind of reacquainted and, and, and deeply committed to the sense of gratitude for just being alive and, um, being in contact with the great mystery of that and yes. the privilege of, you know, um, just this miraculous thing that we, we get to do for a few years, you know? Yes. And there's so much generosity, so much warmth, um, compassion, and how he speaks about it. And of course, you know, this is, um, he's on podcasts and whatnot. Um, you, it appears that this is authentic and that he really is um, sort of coping with this and leaning into the experience he's having um, with this kind of spiritual uh, integrity and meaning and this kind of stuff. I wonder what you're sort of picking up there because it really does seem like he's someone who is, you know, really um, maxed out on his quality of life and is setting himself up for a really good death. Yeah. Well, you know, I think Roland is uh, right now, he is being an amazing teacher, right? right? Like this is an amazing teaching for all mm -hmm. of us. And I think am I, as I have listened to him, I have heard both this issue of his experience with psychedelics to get put him in touch with this ineffable thing that you and I have been talking about a bit and also his um long-standing meditation practice yes right it turns out I'm a long time Zen person too and I, mm -hmm. I do think there's something very potent about that combination in enabling um, you to um, live in the present moment 
I mean, it sounds like a cliche these days, like everybody for everybody is talking about living in the present moment. But when mm -hmm. you are under the gun of uh, a serious illness, there's a whole different quality that takes on. Yeah. And, and it is interesting to me. I, I listened to him the other day on Sam Harris's podcast, and it was interesting to me that as his situation has become more medically serious, yeah. it sounds like his his sense of the richness of the present moment has actually increased, right? Yeah. And if you talk to, you know, the people I really consider Zen, Zen masters, for example, that's the tradition I know the best. I definitely have heard that, that kind of thing before. And I think what he is living now is the life of a practitioner who has been deeply committed to practices that train the mind um, to pay attention to what's really important, right? And so that's what he's doing. So he's not being distracted by a whole myriad of things, right? Yep. He is actually right here. And what that has led to is this um, deep sense of gratitude. And I have seen that in people that in the people and people I've worked with too. This deep sense mm -hmm. of gratitude. And I've seen it come out of people who have finished a, a psychedelic experience. Right. Um, it is a deep sense of gratitude. I think the, the complicated thing about that is that, you know, he's been practicing for decades, yeah. right? Yeah. Like this is not like somebody yeah. who just like turned on Headspace a week ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, the structure of his brain is probably different than the structure of my brain. And, uh -huh. and, um, he has cultivated that over over time. You know, that's why there are these, you know, in, in Tibetan monks who spend all their time getting ready to prepare for death because it actually takes a yeah. lot for all of us to do that. And and I think he's showing us. And I think it's a fascinating, uh, incredibly generous public teaching, especially for someone who's been, until this point, um, very reticent to talk about his Right. own psychedelic experiences. So this has right. been a real sea change. And I think he's doing it very deliberately as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I am full of admiration for this. Yeah. Something incredible about hearing him describe gratitude for the cancer. Yeah. For like um, helping him move to, I don't know, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase, just like a, a more, like more, feeling more woken up more yes. sort of enlightened in a way. Um, yes. And it really does seem like a high bar, right? Like, wow, am I going to be able to do that? Yeah. I mean, I will say that I've heard that a, a version of that from lots of people with cancer. Uh -huh. Like actually there has been a silver lining to this for me. Right. I have realized this. I have reconnected with this. It has made me spend my time doing this. It has let me shed a bunch of this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think what he, what I am hearing there is a, an extreme version of something, a very advanced version of something I hear from lots of people in terms of this. Right. Um, but because he has, you know, he's able to sweep the deck of yeah. his other distractions and things and really dive deeply into the experience of this moment, he has this really deep, uh, this immense sense of gratitude that comes through when he talks. And, you know, when you listen to him, you think, wow, that seems kind of unattainable, right? Like it's, as you said, a high bar, it sounds, it, it, 
it is really up there. But I mean, in the way I think we should look at this, like you look at um, the experience of other like spiritual teachers who are telling yeah. us what's, what's yeah. possible. Yeah. You know, um, I'm going to share something personal that, um, you know, can regularly make me emotional. So just, uh, you know, fair warning here. Um, my mom said something, she died a few years ago. She had, uh, dysplastic anemia oh. and she had, she had really good quality of life for about four years. And then the last six months were less so. But again, I think I mentioned to you before we started that she had a really amazing experience with the palliative care unit at the Royal Victoria Hospital, McGill here in Montreal. Um, but it was maybe halfway through this four and a half year period. And um, my family was one where there was a fair amount of conflict and uh, not everybody got along and it was a bit complicated probably one of the reasons why I became a mental health person. But, um, you know, we were all uh, aware of the seriousness of, of her situation and would, you know, get together and all be really on our best behavior so we could enjoy the quality time knowing that there wasn't that much left. And at one point, you know, we were actually enjoying like quite a lovely time together, which was rare. And she pulled me aside and she said, if this is what it took for us to really come together, it's worth it. Wow. I was like, wow, how does that, how does that math add up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and, and like, this, is this was not <laughs> kind of like a throw. Yeah. Right. Right. That's beautiful. Oh my God. It was not a throwaway, like Hallmark card kind of statement. It was my mom like really valuing the people she loved and really, you know, wishing for us, for everyone to be together and, and connect and enjoy each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so she, again, this, I guess was a, was an expression of gratitude for her illness. And, and she was not a meditator, believe me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what a beautiful story. And, and it just, uh, reminds me how people in those situations you know all of a sudden they could take the big picture mm. right like this is this is about a good that is greater than just her it is about a good that was about your family that right. she cared deeply about and um clearly could see something going on there right yeah it's really beautiful thank you i i continue to think so as well um so i hear you that meditation can be a powerful tool for cultivating these kinds of attitudes um, for that period of one's life. What else are you seeing um, that could really help people have good quality of life if they're seriously ill and have a, a good death? And of course, maybe, uh, maybe I'd love to hear all of your ideas, but I guess the question of the day is where do psychedelics fit into all that? Oh, yeah. Well, so let me give you the big picture first, and then I'll hone down on the psychedelics. Yeah. You know, when people are dealing with a life-threatening illness, you know, they need to make, they need to feel like they have good medical care, you know, doctors they trust, treatments that match up what they are hearing about in the news, right? Well, they, uh, places for that treatment to be given compassionately, right? That's super important. They have to have their symptoms controlled, right? They have to have 
their um, psychological needs met in some way. And, and I think then when you get down to the spiritual thing, which is actually, I think, a very deep-seated need that the medical system doesn't mm -hmm. really have a, a great way of treating. I don't mean to undercut the, the work of chaplains and, and spiritual professionals who work in medical care. I, I, I think they do an amazing job. And yet they often are trailing behind the you know, the, the whole complicated uh, routine of what happens in, you know, big hospitals, right? Like they're trying to sneak in whenever they can between the CT scans and the chemotherapy and the yep. surgery, right? All the radiation. Um, I think where psychedelics might fit in is um, when that stuff isn't forefront, right? Uh -huh. uh, then when people are confronted, or, or have the headspace to, to start to address, you know, what we might consider the spiritual issues or the existential issues, what's going to happen to me, what is happening to me, what's going to be the consequences of this, all this for my family, what is all the stuff that I've left, what that I'm going to leave undone, what is all the stuff that I haven't reconciled. I think that's where psychedelics could have a really critical role. Right. I, I'm sure you've seen people who get near, get into a really serious spot with their serious illness and they're uncomfortable. They're unhappy. They're struggling. Right. And many times I think we medicalize those problems and trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the pain issue? What's the whatever issue? And it, and it turns out it's something much deeper. It turns out it's really something existential. It's really something that's spiritual. And I think we have not had really um, great tools for that, mm -hmm. um, that have allowed people to step out of the defenses that they construct for themselves to live in this world and to live with a serious illness, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we all construct all these psychological defenses to live in the world in whatever circumstances we are given. And actually, I think in many cases, the competent, well-intentioned medical care that we give people actually requires that people amplify those psychological defenses. Like, mm -hmm. you know, think about it, what it takes right. to, you know, get diagnosed with cancer and go to a clinic all the time and get chemotherapy and be on your best behavior. And, you know, try to be pleasant to the nurses who are coming in, giving you the stuff that makes you feel awful. And, you know, not knowing for months whether it really is working or not, right? Um, in this setting that feels to many patients now kind of industrial, it feels like they're in a yeah. big machine, right? Mm -hmm. And they say to me, you know, I feel like I'm just a cog in a big machine. And I think all, you know, bolstering yourself to like get through all that, I think can actually um, distract from the other real issues that that you're facing you know the issue that your mother mentioned you know which for her probably i'm just going to speculate a bit is what's happening to my family here and what's going to happen to them after i leave are they just going to is the whole thing is everybody going to split apart mm -hmm. is everybody going to come together right i mm -hmm. mean for her as as a, a mother that that i'm wondering might might have turned out to be one of the central things for her right Right. right. And, and how do you get to that? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cause, uh, the procedure, the process of, of medical treatment is pretty 
it's pretty distracting and it's pretty right. all-consuming. I right. feel like we've, there's a way in which we've turned people into like professional patients who know how to right. deal with the system, who know how to get right. the tests, who know how to manage themselves. And what it does is it doesn't leave them any um, space to start to feel into this other stuff. Right. And um, I'm sure for many people, I can imagine myself in the situation, having all that to do, all the appointments, all the analysis, all the reflection on, on these practical things is a welcome distraction. Totally. I mean, you know what? We live in a distraction society, right? Yeah. Attention, our attention is a commodity. And if mm -hmm. you look at what happens on Facebook now for people with an illness, and this has been happening ever since the listserv days, it's people bombarding you with things that you should do. Like you're right. the one with the illness and you're getting bombarded with, you should do this, try this, talk to this person, blah, 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 blah. And it's, it, it can be a little overwhelming for people. And so that, you know, there, I, I know patient advocates who now recommend to, to newly diagnosed people that actually they try to stay off the internet and try and limit their contact yeah. because they feel like they're just, they're being, yeah. you know, uh, and put in front of a fire hose. And, yeah. and it is a symptom of our culture at large, right? Yeah. yeah. We live in a distraction society. So, um, yeah, maybe I can, for, yeah, a couple of questions here. So the first one, um, what can you tell us about whatever kind of research there is on psychedelics in, in this field? Um, I know it's, it's, uh, not a huge, um, it's not a huge literature just yet. Um, we know Roland, who we were just talking about contributed to it. What can, wh what's the kind of state of the, of the science at this point? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I would say the state of the science is that we have um, uh, a small number of studies that show very promising results for um, distress, symptoms of depression, anxiety, and this existential kind of uh, what's being called existential distress um, mm -hmm. related to a life-threatening illness. I think the mechanisms of how psychedelics work I think the subgroups of patients for whom it would work the best in, the time in a life-threatening illness it would work the best are all still up for grabs in terms of understanding what, where the research is. I think the yeah. other issue is, could there be group interventions that right. are done um, as an alternative to individual interventions for, you know, screened, you know, carefully screened patients that could those be as good or maybe more more powerful. You know, there's this big literature in other cancer group psychosocial interventions that shows that there is a clear benefit in randomized trials for group interventions without psychedelics, where people talk about coping, they share their experiences, they support each other. There's even some um, data that indicates that those people who participate in those interventions live longer. So there's clearly something going on there. And I think there's a lot of room in the field to um, flesh this out and help mm -hmm. us figure out how to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. I, I think of the existing studies now as kind of proof of concept studies. Right. They are really powerful. They're really intriguing. There's clearly something there, I would say. And I think the question now is how do we flesh that out? Yeah. So, can I ask you to take a stab at fleshing it out? What does it look like? Imagine we're 
10 years from now and there's some, you know, legal regulated pathway for your patients to have access to psilocybin. Yeah. And, um, you basically have a uh, carte blanche here to yeah, yeah. paint the picture of what to it looks the like. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then I, uh, so if I were the oncologist 10 years from now, um, I would say, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on for you aside from this medical stuff. Why don't you have a consult with my psychedelic therapist colleague and my psychedelic therapist colleague, we'll talk to you about what the options are and see if there's something that fits right for you and talk to you about what that might be. And so then, you know, they'd come to see a psychedelic therapist and if they had a lot of PTSD from their treatment, yeah. It might be that the psychedelic therapist would point them towards MDMA. Mm -hmm. If they had really predominantly existential stuff, maybe they get uh, pointed more towards psilocybin. And, you know, I think this would all be done in the context of um, a kind of a preparation that is different than the existing research preparation. I think the research preparation right now makes perfect sense. You know, it's a defined number of you know, yeah. visits, it's a, it's a, it's a protocolized and in a good way. Cause I think that makes it repeatable. But, you know, when I've spoken to, um, uh, psychedelic therapists in Switzerland, for example, who have used LSD on a compassionate use basis, they think of the preparation as very variable and they have some things in mind about when people are ready. And I think mm. in the future, we will have a better idea of when people are really ready, when people, when will people benefit the most, how much preparation do they really need? And what would we, what might we be able to look at as signs that someone has gotten to the point where they're really ready. And so I think we'd be saying to people, you know, let's enter into this and see how the preparation goes and see if, we think a psychedelic thing is going to be the right thing for you. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be a promise that you're going to definitely get it in two more sessions. It might be more of entering a process of discernment about let's enter into this and see, see if there might be something here that that really is suited for you. Um, what about after? Yeah. And then afterwards, I think there's this thing about uh, follow-up uh, therapy that, um, again, certainly pays attention to what we are learning from integration studies now, but also um, being open to the possibility that there is much longer work that needs to go on afterwards. You know, I'm doing this study now, psilocybin for doctors and nurses with symptoms of depression and burnout from their work in the pandemic. And it's very, and, and this study is set up as kind of a classic two therapists, one participant study there, you know, two sessions before, three sessions afterwards, and it just feels really short. And, mm -hmm. you know, there is a lot that we finish these three sessions, which are done in three weeks after the, the trip. And there's still a lot going on for people. Right. And, and so I think in the future, there would, you as a psychedelic therapist would have a lot more flexibility into, mm -hmm. you know, what do I think is the best thing here? What, what do I think is really needed? You know, when are people ready to work and, on something and keep going? When are people really done and they're, you know, they're done? That's an so, interesting one. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Did so you have... No, no, that's okay. my, so yeah. that's my little vision of the future here. Yeah. If I had my own way. Oh, and then there would be group and there would be a group option. Groups. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, it's an interesting one. This, like this integration piece, because, um, first of all, I'm, I'm definitely a believer in, you know, that it's not a protocol that decides 
when a person's ready to get opened up like that. And I'm actually really sensitive to, you know, what, what it's going to look like after they get opened up like that. Um, and, you know, in the context here, you know, in a private mental health clinic, can people afford to pay often out of pocket often, um, you know, here, here in Canada anyway, um, you know, covered to some extent by, you know, their health insurance, but, you know, there's a risk in opening somebody up like that. And then in, in, when we're talking about someone with a terminal illness, there's a, there's a kind of hard stop at some point. And so I feel like that must enter into the, into the calculation as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's like sending people to big meditation retreats. You know, people get opened up and then, whoa, all kinds yeah. of things can happen afterwards. And, yeah. And yeah. they can be. So I, I do think this is going to be another one of the things that we are going to learn about. What's the timing for these things? I mean, yeah. I have to say this is one, this issue of what is required for people to make sense of their trip and really benefit from it. That is what makes me a little worried about doing psychedelic therapy right at the end of life for people. Right, exactly. Two issues for me. One is that I think it takes a certain amount of energy to like yeah. do the psychological work. It's hard, right? Yeah. It's it, yeah. and so if you if you're not able if you're not physically going to be able to do that if you don't have the energy, I'm I guess I'm not as sure that just going on a trip is going to be is going to create longer term benefits. And the other thing is I feel like doing things a little bit more upstream would actually give people mm-hmm. the the space and time to do that integration and enjoy the time, right? Like enjoy the benefit of doing all that work, right? So I think we're I think that's where we just have a lot to learn. It's not that I want to deny people, gosh, at the end of life who are really at the end of life the opportunity for this, but I am thinking about what's the place where we would you know, get the biggest bang for the, for our, get the biggest bang for the buck in terms of a a complicated, expensive therapy. The other thing I want to say here is that I do think this is where we as um, people in the medical world need to think about how are we going to enter, how could we interface in a future with more community led things? Mm-hmm. Could there be community spaces where people go after a psychedelic experience and continue to be supported, continue to share experiences, continue to have places to think and feel that are outside, you know, everyday life? And not all of those would necessarily need to be led by a medical professional. And in some ways, I could imagine a future future integration circles led by cancer survivors, you know, can't people living with cancer that could be incredibly powerful and all the more powerful because they're not so medicalized. Right. And so I, I do think in psychedelic culture, I'm hoping that there will be space for both things, right? There will be space for the medically supervised stuff for people who have complicated medical issues, right? Like you want somebody with some medical training to like screen you if you're a person with metastatic cancer who's in the middle of your therapy for a psychedelic treatment, right? That seems like sensible to me. And could there be community spaces that are constructed in safe ways for people who don't need quite that level of of medical oversight um, that might enable this whole thing about well-being to stretch into a different part of their their lives and a different part of the community life. Yeah. 
I'm curious um, to hear more about the study that you're doing with the healthcare professionals. Can oh, you yeah. say more? Yeah. So this is a randomized trial of uh, doctors, nurses, and um, uh, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, provider level clinicians who um, have symptoms of depression um, as the entry criteria. So this, uh, you know, I, I, I think what doctors and nurses have um, experienced as a result of the pandemic is it's not for people who did not have a prior mental health condition, which are the people in this study, you know, it's not quite classic MDD. It's not quite classic burnout. It, it's, it's, it's not quite PTSD. It's something kind of that has elements of all things is what I am seeing. You know, there, there, I, I see clinicians who are, um, deeply demoralized and deeply disillusioned by what they have um, had to do in the pandemic. They're people who are haunted by the dying that they saw, you know, and they were very uncomfortable deaths in the early phase of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. People really physically suffered. And these clinicians are haunted by um, not having had the time and, or the equipment to, to take care of them on the way they usually had. Then the second wave in the U.S. was this wave of, you know, the vaccines came and they thought, oh, everything will be solved. And in fact, there was a whole new problem. There are people screaming at them, people spitting at them, people throwing bedpans at them, people accusing them of lying. And, you know, these are clinicians who are like, holy cow, I did not sign up for this. Mm -hmm. And they, I think, found that deeply, you know, deeply discouraging. Um, and then there are people who um, I think have, have, have just had this enduring moral distress that has turned into something else. The sense that, you know, what I'm doing isn't really helping anybody. It's not really doing any good. Why should I keep doing this? I'm just, you know, a cog in this big machine. And so anyway, so that, all that, I developed this study that is a single psilocybin treatment, you know, the preparation integration. Uh, for these um, doctors and nurses, we have um, enrolled about we've we've actually treated about two thirds of the patients in the sample, mm -hmm. um, so we're kind of coming into the home stretch here. Um, it's been a really interesting, beautiful experience to sit with these um, doctors and nurses, and and I do think that for the people who end up in the study, who are people who did not have prior mental health issues, who had pretty significant symptoms, so we're using the madras as the eligibility criteria, and you had to have a Madras score of 20. So, you know, moderate symptoms of depression. So these are people who are pretty effective, right, symptomatically. But what's interesting about them, and I think what is a little different from the MDD thing, is that they are all still working. They all basically sacrifice their personal life to, so that they can mm. maintain their productivity at work. They're all mm -hmm. really identified with what it means to be a good doctor and nurse. They all work really hard. They have all massively try to do all the other coping strategies. They all exercise. They all meditate. They've all done something else. They've been mm. to energy healers. They've been to therapists. They've been to everything. They are very aware that they are having a tough time coping and they are trying mm. everything. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 kind of an interesting group. And and there have been some really remarkable anecdotes that I you know that I, I have seen so far. Of course we haven't analyzed the data and <laughs> And, um, you know, we're not, we're, we're not there yet, but it's pretty easy to see who's, who's gotten the, 
you know, who's gotten the medicine and who've gotten the placebo. Right. Uh, in this study, actually, after you, if you are randomized to the placebo at, after the day 28 time point, which is the primary outcome, you um, can um, uh, sign up for an open label session. And so we've done now a, a bunch of open label sessions <laughs> because we've not wanted to wait until the very end of the study to do the open label sessions because we thought it was, it's just too long. Mm -hmm. and, and so those have been super interesting, too. So, yeah. So um, maybe broadening out from there, why psilocybin? Why not uh, like, you know, um, yeah, yeah. in your study and maybe more broadly in the field, why not ketamine? Yeah. Why not MDMA? Why not LSD? Why not 5-MeO-DMT? Like what's, the, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. the deal? Yeah. Well, there's a certain pragmatism to it from yeah. my point of view, right? Like psilocybin, I had access to through the USONA Institute. That was quite they were interested and, and very cooperative and very helpful. I, I actually had this um, hypothesis that underlying all these symptoms was a great deal of grief, mm. right? And, and grief and this kind of um, aversion of this kind of existential thing from being surrounded by so much death. Right. And there has definitely been a certain chunk of that. And then there, and then I think there's been some other stuff that we are still you know, characterizing, but that was why psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you could have done, you could do a study. I think there is somebody doing a study with MDMA. Um, the reason I, um, I actually wanted to work with um, psilocybin and a classical psychedelic, because I actually have the sense that that, that is, they, they are more potent. I, I have less experience with ketamine personally, clinically. Um, but that was my interest in, um, that was my investigator interest. And so that was yeah. why I chose psilocybin. Okay. Yeah. Um, staying with, uh, doctors here for a second. Yeah. Um, I really, um, have so much appreciation for the palliative care doctor that supported my mother and, um, just, you know, was blown away by, how, like, you know, how open her heart was and how sort of emotionally available she was, how present she was. Um, and I think my mom fell into the category of people that like didn't want to talk about death, didn't, you know, just like leave me alone with that stuff, you know? Um, and That's sure enough, uh, pretty, like it yeah. took a while. She it got there, but it took a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess it won't surprise you to hear that this Dr. Lawler was a meditator and she was oh, part yeah. of the, you know, overlapping kind of mindfulness community that I, I'm a part of. And um, yeah, another one of those cases where she had a lot of practice. So I, I, I'm kind of curious now, just um, from the point of view of like practitioner training, right? How do you, how do you help a physician who, you know, in medical school and residency probably has a lot to learn on a more sort of like practical basis, more, um, you know, data and models and protocols and things like this, more so than the bedside banner, you know, how to connect with people. So how, do, how does someone become, you know, or develop this capacity for presence and compassion that, yeah. that I was uh, so impressed by? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, so I know Dr. Lawler, she's oh. a pretty remarkable person cool, and um, has a deep meditation practice and a deep right. background in this. And, and you know what, I think 
we need to do as a field, which I think we haven't done. And maybe I, I, I'm wondering if psychedelics could help with this, is to make it clear that this kind of practice exists and it's real and it's not and it's more than bedside manner like and i mm -hmm. and i don't mean to discount what you were saying but i i often hear bedside manner as kind of the surface niceties that people bring mm -hmm. when they're with a patient really mm -hmm. when i when i think about what somebody like um dr lawler she is doing something much deeper right right she is bringing her whole self into this encounter in 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 a way over and over and over again that invites somebody even somebody who's a little skeptical to say "Ooh, i i really can let down my guard here Ooh, i really do want to connect with this person at this level mm -hmm. because that is what's being offered to me here it's not like the person like when i was getting a colonoscopy the woman was staring at the screen and says are you safe at home well, right, like that was a screen on a questionnaire, but that is not what she is doing, right? She is right. clearly doing something different. And I think what uh, there needs to be is there needs to be a sense of, you know, what is possible when you practice like this, uh, a clear path of training to get towards that level of competence. And then I think there has to be an affordance in the system that says, actually, we want to support people like this. There is mm -hmm. a place for people like this in our health system. Um, you know, right now, much of that kind of psych psychosocial work has been offloaded, 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 offloaded yeah. to, you know, the people who are the lowest on the totem pole because the perception is that anybody can just do that. And in fact, right. you know, of course, you know, having been with your mother and this doctor, the exact opposite is true. Right. It's not anybody who can just do that. And so I, I think this is, in a way, the heart of a kind of um, clinical encounter that is possible, that mm -hmm. psychedelics might make more visible. Um, and I think mm -hmm. we need to use this opportunity, psychedelics, to say, what what is it going to be um, that we want to see? as this medicine comes into the clinic, you know, cause I, you know, like I, I can tell I, my clear belief is it's not going to be just about giving people the medicine, right? It's going to be about the people who are with the people before yeah. and during and after when they get the medicine. That's really what it's about. That's really what is going to cause, that's really what results in these outcomes. And I think it's important for us as we think about how do we construct studies and look yes. at outcomes and describe what the conditions are for this, um, that all that becomes part of the picture so that it doesn't result in, in a thing where people are, you know, uh, getting a psychedelic and being in a room alone and then doing some kind of follow-up on their phone. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. that's I, I just deeply don't think that's going to work. And, and right. yet there are cost pressures that are going to drive yes. that in that direction unless we as the leaders in the field clearly lay out the case with data that um, for it to really work, this is what's needed. Right. So that's a really, maybe um, we can now wind it down after this follow-up because I know I'm conscious of your time and probably got a lot of work to do this afternoon, but um, I'm totally with you on the need um, to do this stuff with integrity 
or else it's not going to work, as you say. And uh, the cost pressures do reflect a challenge, which is, you know, doing psychedelic work uh, effectively does require a lot of input. And, you know, it's the therapists and the sitters and the guides. And um, there are not that many people that actually know how to do this work relative to the number of people that actually need that kind of support. Um, part of it is just like a scale question of like, how do we train people to do it? But how do you, and, and you also, you did mention the group um, option, but how do you see the big challenge of scaling this very human, human scale work? Yeah. You're going to leave that to the entrepreneurs or, or do you have some vision for it? No, I, I think actually is going to be up to us as um, the people who are forming this field mm -hmm. to, um, you know, we can actually learn some things from the entrepreneurs about scaling, but I would especially say that there are things to learn from the social entrepreneurs about how do you scale communities? How do right. you scale communities of practitioners? How do you scale communities of lay people who can help hold these containers? Um, I do think this is going to challenge us to look outside the existing medical models mm -hmm. for what is really going to, what is really going to make this um, happen. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm really looking forward to those discussions and those um, experiments, because I think they will be important ways for us to look at mental health as not things that only are located just in clinics. Right. Right. And right. so I, I don't I don't know that I have a preformed idea about this, but I definitely in my experience, you know, doing communities and, and doing group work, you know, I've been uh, learning to do group facilitation in the Netherlands at a, at a legal um, mm -hmm. psilocybin retreat center. Mm -hmm. And clearly there is a whole um, expertise in doing these groups that is definitely teachable, scalable, mm -hmm. right? All that stuff. And so, you know, the fact that it seems far from reach right now, that actually doesn't bother me. I actually think we actually need to figure out what really works and how can we capture the best of what really makes it work mm -hmm. and um, figure out what the right size model is. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I don't have a simple answer for you, but, and I think it's a challenge that we really need to step up to. And especially mm -hmm. those of us, I think who work in medical settings need yeah. to think about how do we partner with people in what are currently, you know, different settings so that we can really figure out a way, to, a way to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, that vision that that um, makes it feel a little more accessible. And um, I also hear you that it is incumbent upon the people that are in the field right now to communicate clearly about what's actually needed to take care of people properly, because the the alternative is way worse. Right. The alternative is a race to the bottom. Yeah. Right. I'm not kidding. I yeah. mean, in the, probably in the United States more than in Canada, but the alternative is a race to the bottom. And so if we're not super careful right now, you know, you're going to be getting your uh, package of psilocybin in the mail with a few little instructions and a video to watch. And they're going to go, that's good. And I'm going to go. Ooh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, Tony, thank you so much okay. for doing this. This is so much fun. Joe, it's so great to meet you. Thank you. I, and I'd love to 
check in with you again when we're a little bit further into this field and see how we're doing relative to some of the things you have recommended for the field. Yeah, totally. I would love to come back. Thank you. All right. So wishing you a great rest of the day. Anything else that um, you think we should cover before we break? No, I think we've covered a lot. Great. Anything you want to just mention in terms of projects you're doing, studies, some any commercial activity, this is your opportunity. Oh, uh, you know, I have a couple things in the works, but they're not ready to get announced yet. So yeah, Okay. stay tuned. All right. Thanks again. Take care. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous, a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it. Rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to the Numinous YouTube channel. Like the videos and share it. Share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.